Hi guys, welcome back to A Pension Prevention. A Pension Prevention is a podcast associated with Evansville's very own Prevention Youth Council. Our mission is to uplift the voices of teens by providing them with opportunities to advocate for themselves and their communities and promote healthy interpersonal relationships. I'm Nicole. And I'm Rupa, and today we have with us Reverend Kevin Fleming. Could you please introduce yourself and tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Happy to. My name is Kevin Fleming. I'm the pastor at First Presbyterian Church. I was born in western Pennsylvania and went to college in western Pennsylvania, then on to seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and I've been a pastor since 1986. I'm married to a woman who is also a pastor. We have triplet daughters who will be 26 years old this year. So that's where I've come from. Um, and I have been the pastor here at First Pres. Uh, on September 1st, I will begin my 24th year. Thank you so much for joining us Absolutely. So this is our third episode of our religious series in which we interview people associated with different religions within the community. Our goal with this series is to create an open conversation between religious groups and increase the connectedness of our community. So for our first question, we just want to know how the religion became a part of your life, were you born into it, etc. I was born into a Christian family that was very, I would say, more conservative um, that's how I was raised and how I practiced my faith for many, many years. But as I got into college and into seminary, that felt more like a straitjacket. It didn't feel comfortable to me. Uh, it, it made God smaller than I imagined God to be. So uh, I began to explore other expressions of Christianity. By the time I got to seminary, uh, it was in the years of liberation theology, womanist theology, and so I did a, I was one of the first men to do an independent study in feminist theology with one of the leading feminist scholars of the day. So um, it kind of changed a lot of the things that I understood in the way I understood the faith to be. So I, you know, I've continued to grow, um, and that has been terrific, but I'm grateful that I was born into a family of faith. Uh, my mother's side of the family was very northern Presbyterian, which means conservative. My father's side of the family was Roman Catholic, and he was invited to leave the Catholic Church when he married my mother. So my grandfather would take me away to Mass on Sunday afternoon sometimes. I was the only kid in the Presbyterian Church Sunday school that knew the Lord's Prayer in Latin. So that so I, I've had a lot of different experience. And now, with interfaith uh, experiences, that, that has changed a lot of the way I think and practice, too. That's amazing. So a little bit more about your religion. What are your favorite traditions and how do you personally celebrate them? Well, of course you have the holidays and for Christians that is primarily Christmas and Easter. Um, and we spend too much money at Christmas and eat too much chocolate at Easter. That's how we <laughs> celebrate. Um, but they, you, the, the Christian calendar is built basically on the life of Christ. So um, we begin the year with Advent, which is the season before Christmas, four Sundays before Christmas. And then we follow along until we get to the spring of the year when we typically celebrate Easter, which is the resurrection, uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus. So those are the two big major events. But frankly, in our tradition, every Sunday is supposed to be a little Easter because it's the day of resurrection. So we're supposed to celebrate Sundays with some gusto. And uh, 
that's been a little hard with COVID. Um, we had an invisible congregation for a long time. Um, I was preaching to nobody. I could talking talking to people I couldn't see, which is a definition of insanity. And uh, that's my job for the period of time when I was doing that. But now, you know, today was the first Sunday we had our choir back in wow. 18 plus months. So it was like, oh man, finally they're back, you know. And music's a huge part of our, our religious tradition. The congregation sings and we've got a choir that sings and Sometimes music can express something that mere words can't. So that's a big and important part of what we do. But the, the, the major holidays, but every Sunday is supposed to be special, and we try to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, Rupa and I saw a lot of smiling faces coming out of the church today. Well, that's because so. they were coming out of the church today. <laughs> they, they, they don't smile so much on the way in, but they're pretty happy to get out. So, no, it's a good congregation. that, And believe me, they have missed the choir. Yeah. They have missed the choir a lot, so they were excited today when the choir was up there and they sounded like the choir again. <laughs> Wonderful. So, going on to more of social issues. Sure. How do you think your religion handles topics such as healthy relationships and consent? And are they talked about enough within your religion? Probably not. I don't know that they could ever be talked about enough. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there would have been a day... Uh, There's certainly a day in my life when the preacher would have said, don't you dare, and, you know, threatened us with hell had we done. Um, But I I think respect is something we need to really stress with children and young people. Um, I can stand up and say, don't, 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 till the cows come home. That's not going to stop anybody. But... um, Understanding and respecting every other human being on the planet as created in the image of God will keep you from doing things that are abusive, that are coercive, um, that ignore the wishes of a partner. Um, So, uh, do we talk about it enough? No. No, we probably don't. Uh, But at least we talk about it. Yeah which is a whole different world from the one in which I grew up. So the more we can talk about it and confront some of them, you know, we, we hear stories in the media, and of course people hear stories from school and other things. And back when I was doing a lot of youth ministry, um, I would always try to have a relationship with all of my young people that they could pretty much say whatever they needed to say. And we could talk about whatever they needed to talk about in a group or individually. But the church has not been good about it needs to be better about it. Um, so I hope we can keep moving in that direction. Mm, I agree. Yeah. So um, what are the roles of women within your religion? Oh, well, um, women in the Presbyterian Church have been a part of pastoral leadership since the 1950s. Wow. Um, my wife has exactly the same degrees that I have, except hers are probably from better schools. <laughs> Uh, and with a better grade point average. Um, we are a people who demand a lot of education for our clergy. So you have to have a four-year bachelor's degree, and then you go three years to seminary. And part of that seminary training is becoming proficient in using ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek so that you can go back to the original texts and look at the words. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the rabbi is a whole lot better at Hebrew than I am because he had to live in Israel and Mm-hmm. speak Hebrew and study Hebrew. But we get enough Hebrew and, and Greek just to be dangerous. 
and go back and look at some of the really important words in a sentence and say, ah, that, that translates a different way than what's in this translation yeah. of the Bible. So women have had leadership roles. Now, does that mean they get the big churches? Probably not. There's still a lot of sexist thinking within the church. Um, but, for instance, um, the executive presbyter, who is the top official in our presbytery, is a woman. The, the, the synod executive, which is another layer of the church, is a woman. So there's hope. Um, there are a few women in what we refer to as the tall steeple churches. Uh, certainly not enough. Their road is not as easy as it is for men, uh, but we're making some progress. Well, I think that's all you can ask of. Progress. Well, yeah. I hope, but, yeah. you know, I'm a little impatient when it comes to yeah. progress. I'd like I still completed the progress yesterday. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But it's coming along. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So within your religion, how do you think domestic abuse and marriage, within marriage, are handled? Uh, probably, again, not well. Yeah. Um, but it is very clear from a conservative to a liberal interpretation of Scripture that there is no place for domestic violence. There's no place for physical abuse of a spouse or anyone else. Um, certainly not the abuse of a child. Um, again, you go back to the idea that we are all created in the image of God and that image requires respect and acknowledgement of equality. And if you can begin to think that way, it's going to help solve a few problems. Uh, have I ever had to speak to someone about abuse? Yeah. Uh, did I counsel the wife to get out of the home? Yeah. Uh, did I spend money putting that person up in a hotel for a while? Yeah. Um, did her husband ultimately shape up? No. Um, so, you know, you have to, for me, it's always the victim. I've got mm -hmm. to protect the victim. Um, and sometimes it can be the male, sometimes it's the female. Most of the time it's the female. Um, but as a pastor, I must protect the victim. That's amazing. So you've kind of already like touched on this a few times, but how are social issues such as sexual harassment addressed or not addressed within your religion? Oh, in the Presbyterian Church, we have to sign a we have to go to a class classes on uh, Safe Church, which is about harassment and abuse. We have to sign papers. Um, we can be taken to a court within the church if we are accused of abuse. I have had to sit as a judge on one of those courts, uh, and it ended up in the minister being removed from ministry. Um, in, in our church, there's no cover-up. Um, there is immediate, we have what's called a crisis response team. So if, uh, and, and I'm speaking especially now of clergy abuse, mm -hmm. um, if, uh, if a, an abuse is reported, we have a, an, an emergency a response team that goes and deals with the victim immediately gets them into whatever kind of counseling or safety they need to be in. Um, we go and meet with the, the accused. Uh, we remove the accused from practice for that period of time, and then we 
work our way through. Sometimes we can do that with counseling and absence from the from ministry for a while. Sometimes it's just too egregious and we can't take the risk of allowing that person to be back into ministry. Never heard of something like that before. That's I so haven't like, either. Yeah. yeah. More of the mainline, old mainline churches, United Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, you'll, you'll see that. Um, the Roman Catholic Church is working hard to get a system in place. Uh, but there's been a lot of pain, mm -hmm. and that's got to be healed. Well, that is holding people directly accountable, which is so important. Absolutely. So yeah. important. Absolutely. I mean, tell me you don't know better. Yeah. Please tell me you don't know better. I mean, that's the first thought that comes through mm -hmm. my head when, I'm get, when I get a call about something like this. What do you mean? You need better than that. You just chose to take care of yourself and not care about somebody else. Yeah, exactly. I would agree. So how do you think your religion handles the LGBTQ plus communities? That has been the question of my ministry for 30 plus years. I will tell you that the official position of the Presbyterian Church is we are open to LGBTQ issues. We are open to, their, to people. We will ordain people to be ministers and leaders in the church who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgendered. Um, it is not always easy for those folks to find calls uh, to be to find a church in which to employ. However, you're back to the basic issue. In my church, it's a little more difficult because we baptize babies. Mm -hmm. Now, baby doesn't know whether they're gay, straight, what. Yeah. Okay, we baptize them. They're a child of God. They're a part of the congregation. Now they get to be 13 and they say, hey, you know, I'm gay. What do we do then? Take away their baptism? No. They're a child of God. They're part of the congregation. Good, you're gay. Let's, mm -hmm. let's celebrate you're gay. Yeah. Uh, I'm so glad we don't have to worry about this nonsense anymore. Yeah. It's, uh, now, there are still plenty of Christian churches who, no, back, you can't come in here. I don't believe that's Christian. Mm -hmm. If we're going to use Christian as an adjective, Christian hate does not work. Mm -hmm. And don't tell me you love the sinner, but you love the sinner, but you hate the sin. That, yeah. That's nonsense. That's a cop-out. Mm -hmm. you got to love everybody because you're a sinner too. Mm -hmm. And there's a heck of a lot more in the Bible about overweight people and making, insurance, uh, making interest on loans and touching pig's skin, and eating pork. There's a lot more about that than the six verses in the Bible that talk about homosexuality. So, give me a break. Um, um, when, when Jesus talked more about the poor and never saw a mumbling word about gay people, mm -hmm. I'm going to work about the poor. And I don't want to hear about how somebody who loves someone is going to hell. That's just not working for me anymore. Yeah. That is wonderful to hear. Yeah. I wish more Christians could be that way. Mm -hmm. There's nothing in the Bible that prevents us from saying and believing and acting that way. Mm -hmm. Nothing. So kind of to wrap all of this up, do you see these open conversations as valuable to other religions? Should religion be a more open and fluid conversation, or should different institutions be kept separate? So here's an illustration I was given by a professor in college, and I use it all the time. Imagine... Michelangelo's statue of David being on display but put into a corner. And the only way you could see the statue was to look at it straight on. Would not be very inspiring. Mm -hmm. 
which is why in reality the statue is in the middle of a round room and you can walk around it and view it from every angle and your brain begins to put together a more three-dimensional view of the thing you're looking at. Okay, let's put God in the middle of a round room. And the only way you can experience God is by going around the room and looking through different windows. So I might be born looking through the Christian window. But then I go over and I look at God through the Jewish window. And then I go and look at God through the Muslim window. Then I go and look at God through the Hindu window. Then I go and look through God at the Zoroastrian window. And I just go and look at all of Then I get this much bigger image of God than I had as just one view Christian. I have learned more about God from Jews and Muslims than I probably have from Christians. And that's maybe a bit of an overstatement, but not by much. Interfaith dialogue, to me, is where we have to go in the future. We have to go in the present. Yeah. And that's why I'm grateful for Gary Mazo at Temple Adath B'nai Israel and, and uh, Muhammad at, at the Islamic Society, Muhammad Hussein and, and Godfrey Mullen at St. Benedict Cathedral. Our four congregations get together and have conversations on topics and get together and just have a meal together. And we're kind of like the God Squad, you know, we, we hang out <laughs> I together. Like and, that. Yeah. and And we, we learn from each other, which is so wonderful. Mm -hmm. So wonderful. And, you know, Gary and I do a thing every year that we swap pulpits. So I go and preach Shabbat, and he comes here and does, he, he always gets a harder deal because he's got to preach two services on Sunday, and I only have to do one Shabbat service. But, you know, I love going there on High Holy Days. Yeah. I'll be, I'll be there for Rosh Hashanah. I'll be there every all day for Yom Kippur, however long the services are going to go. It, it feeds me. It's, it's a different food than Presbyterian white bread that I'm accustomed to eating all the time. You know, i got to have me some good kosher stuff, and then i got to go to Juma every now and again and get some good Islamic food. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's really important. And the more we do that the more we're going to break down these walls that keep people keep trying to erect between us to keep us divided from each other. Yeah. It is critically important on all subjects that we have conversation. So do you feel that these open conversations you've had with different religious leaders has made you a better leader for your I church? Hope. Yeah, yeah I, I hope. You know, I, I don't just see things and hear things and think things in Christian terms. You know, there, there are times, for instance, a, a lot of the New Testament, and especially the Gospel of John, especially the Gospel of John, Jews get a pretty bad painting. They're always seen as the problem makers. The Bible is a source of anti-Semitism. It's the Bible that was distorted in Germany that allowed six million Jews to be executed. We've got to be careful in our Christian understanding that we there's a lot of anti-Semitic thought that we have got to deal with. And we have to hold up to our people and say, it may say this, but this is wrong. This is not good stuff. Um, you know, when you, when you take the extreme parody uh, of, of white nationalist racism, anti-Semitism, these are Bible-believing people. They don't 
believe the same Bible I believe, but they're Bible-believing people. And that's why the church must be vigilant. We have in one, one we have a, a collection of confessions, we call them in the Presbyterian Church. One of the confessions is the Theological Declaration of Barman. Nobody studies it except crazy people like me. The Theological Declaration of Barman was written during Nazi-occupied Germany by Protestant church leaders confronting the creation of the Reichskirche, the, the, the state's church, which would have had Hitler as the head of the church. This statement is just unbelievably profound. We also have the Theological Declaration, no wait, the Belhar Confession. The Belhar Confession was written in South Africa during apartheid. And it takes it on. And I'm using a lot of, of, uh, of Belhar in dealing with Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. You know, the church has got to be out there in front of the Black Lives Matter movement. We were there during the 60s, which led to the Confession of 1967 in the Presbyterian Church, which is all about unity. You know, so the, what I love about my tradition is from time to time, we will stop and take a snapshot of who we are in the time in which we find ourselves. And then we will say, oh, well, this isn't right. We need to do this better. And we'll turn that into a confession. And then we can be guided by that as we interpret Scripture and as we live our lives. I really like the metaphor about the whole Michelangelo painting. It was just put like so beautifully to just understand that. Like that was the late Dr. Peter Mackey. Yeah. He was just a brilliant guy. And Pete was one of those guys that really, really got me excited about doing theology. Because mm -hmm. um, I went to college thinking I was going to be a band director. <laughs> and thank God that didn't happen. Um, but... He had um, a 20-some step process for interpreting a verse of Scripture. And I wrote a 72-page term paper in college on Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Hachad, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. You have to take these commandments and bind them on your hands. You put them on the doorposts of your house. And that was just, wow, you know. 20-something kid playing theologian. It was great. But Peter was just brilliant. Brilliant, yeah. man. Well, that metaphor just, like, encapsulates the term, like, we are better together. Like, oh, we are being absolutely. together. Yeah. Let me see through your eyes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And though I can't physically do that, I can know enough about your tradition that it's going to tell me something new about my God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You learn more from others than you oh, can absolutely. ever think. And you know one of the one of the greatest learnings that really pushed me forward was when I gave myself permission to see God as He, She, and It. Yeah. You know, I got away from a cisgendered God, and that changed everything. Because the idea of the masculine God can become toxic real fast. And the feminine God, and it's interesting because the two words for spirit, pneuma in Greek and uh, 
Oh, there goes my senior citizen brain. <laughs> Hebrew. They're both feminine. They're both feminine. So God, she, works. Um, and it, I think it helps, uh, especially my non-binary young friends, to allow God to be non-binary. Yeah. I mean, it's such a 20th century idea. It's it's nineteenth century idea that God has to be one or the other. No, no, God is all, and we're the ones that limit God. We want to domesticate God. The last thing we want is a wild and unpredictable God. But that is the nature of God, who tells Moses from the burning bush. Moses says, "Give me your name," and God says, "We're not going to be that familiar. I'll be yes. there as I'll be there." Well. Who can, how can I tell the people who sent me? I'll be there as I'll be there. God's name is a verb. In Hebrew, God's name is a verb. It's not about a person, it's about a doing. And that changes everything. So thanks to the Jews for teaching me that. You know? Yeah, perfect example. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And, you know, I do need to say a word about my Muslim friends because they get the worst rap because of idiots. Okay? Terrorists are to Muslims what the Ku Klux Klan is to Christianity. Yeah. Okay? Let's be clear. Mm -hmm. There are three monotheistic faiths. The three Abrahamic faiths, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. We are cousins. We had the same great-grandfather. That was Abraham. Mm -hmm. The tenets of Islam are completely and totally compatible with Christianity. Completely and totally. The, the challenge is that Islam is lived differently in different cultures across the Arab and non-Arab world. And so sometimes it's difficult to tell what's, tr what's cultural and what's religious. That's why you have to know a little bit more about Islam than meets the eye. Yeah. I, am, I am overwhelmed by the sense of Islamic hospitality. Mm -hmm. It's unbelievable. I mean, you know, you come to the Presbyterian Church, we might give you some stale cookies and, and bad coffee, <laughs> you know? You go, you go out to the mosque, and there's a full meal when it's supposed to be dessert. No, well, that's not how hospitality happens in the Islamic tradition. You know, it, it's just amazing. And I'm learning more about the Hindu tradition, but I'm not there yet. i got to keep working on, on my Hindu stuff. Um, nativist and spiritualist stuff is fascinating to me. Native American traditions, religious traditions, are fascinating to yeah. me. Um, I spent some time while I was on sabbatical around Navajo people. Uh, not as much as I wanted because of the damn virus, but, um, you know, it... There's a lot to learn. Yeah. There's a lot to learn. And, you know, I'm going to be 64 in December, 63, something like that, which is not possible. <laughs> um, but I'm still learning. Mm -hmm. And that's really fun. It's really fun. Yeah. It's like the idea that like, you never stop learning no matter where you are. The minute life. you stop learning, you start dying. Yeah. Yep. No. 
I'm not up for that yet. Yeah. I'll, I'll do that someday, but I'm not in a hurry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's just remarkable to hear that. Just mm -hmm. the power of community is huge. Oh, yeah. unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. Which is what I love about my own faith tradition. We are a communal faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's all, you know, there are some people in, in, in Christianity are all about an individualized faith. It's about if I were to die tonight, do I know where I'd spend eternity? Well, if you keep asking that question, you'll become so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. So my tradition is we are a community of faith. We care for each other and we care for those beyond our community. You know, what, what did Jesus commend as the two greatest commandments? Love God, love your neighbor. Well, that happens in every single religious tradition. Yep. It's not, it's not exclusively Christian. You're way more similar to them than you think. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's what we've discovered with our interfaith stuff in Evansville. Mm -hmm. We have far more in common than divides us. Mm -hmm. Far more in common. I have more in common with Jews and, and Muslims and Catholics than I do with some Protestant Christians. Mm -hmm. Far more. So, you know, I'm grateful that that's been part of my life recently, you know, within the last seven, eight, ten years, that, that we can explore that together. Mm -hmm. Well, I would just like to thank you for sharing yeah. your experiences with us. Well, thank this you. Was incredible. Good. And thank you again for listening to A Pinch of Prevention.